Hey, this is Alex Kohler, and you are listening to another episode of the Go-To-Market Mastery Podcast. In today's episode, we are talking about building partnership sales with our guest, Robert Gimbel. Enjoy the episode. If you can't learn how to close, you better start thinking about another career. And I am deadly serious about that. Just came across my desk, John. It is perhaps the best thing I've seen in the last six months. If you have 60 seconds, I'd like to share the idea with you. Hello, Robert. Hey, Alex. Hey, um, I'm really, really excited that you're here. Um, yeah, you were in the artist podcast and I reached out to you because I thought, okay, I need you also in my podcast. Um, by the way, you rocked and smashed the artist podcast. And yeah, now you're here, Robert, and we're talking about a really, really exciting topic. At least I think for us, it is very exciting. It is partnership sales. Um, so yeah, really excited that you're here. But before, I would like to start um, by you just sharing a bit about more yourself um, and the companies you were at. Weren't many, but I think there's one in specific. Um, yeah, you can say a lot. To, so um, yeah, would be great if you could share a little bit more about you. Yeah, happy to. Um, thanks, Alex. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, uh, very glad to take part in your podcast here and happy to say a few words um, about where this knowledge and experience that we're going to talk about is coming from, basically. Who am I? My name is Robert. I live uh, and work in Berlin. I originally studied business, business administration. Um, was always fascinated by tech and the impact that it can have. So not really drawn to join a bank or a large consultancy in the early days, but more uh, drawn towards the Berlin tech scene. That's where I started. After a couple of years, I joined a company called Camunda. That's the one you referred to. I've been working there for 14 years. Basically, having seen all parts of the company, uh, first I helped to structure and organize the way we built the product, um, then um, transitioned over to more like the admin side of the firm and then eventually to go to market. And there it was my mission to build a, an engine, a go-to-market engine, so to say, that could get us from 10 to 100 million. Yeah, really, really exciting. And that would be also my next question. You weren't also, like you weren't, I think you, 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 it's 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 safe to say that you haven't been taking the yeah regular CHRO par, uh, like path like sales or customer support and then VP sales or VP customer support and then RevOps. So how did you even end up in a, in a, in a go to market? Um, yes, that's a good question. Actually, a topic that's uh, that I'm passionate about. When I was at university, I didn't learn any like much about the go-to-market world or the sales world. The majority of the content um, was related to what you would find in yeah in the CFO organization. So, what brought me there? I think it's my my talent and ambition to bring order to chaos that's kind of my personal sweet spot i did it as i just said in two other parts of the firm before and then um my ceo said like hey here's a new challenge do you want to try and organize the go-to-market engine um, for us 
So my approach was always very operational. I always considered myself an operational CRO, relying a lot on data. I was, of course, also involved in sales in the early days of building the product, right? Like um, there's a natural dependency there. But I was never going through this classical SDR, AE, sales manager, RevOps career to CRO. Um, it wasn't in my way, I think. Uh, did a, did an okay job there. Um, but yeah, that's the reason. And these days, I'm taking that knowledge from, in particular, from that journey in the last five years and, and pass it on to, to others who are going through the same journey. And what yeah. you can see is many companies are facing very similar challenges on the go-to-market side. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, that every one of you uh, can reach out to Robert since he's recently been active on LinkedIn, which um, I'm very excited about to see his posts and learn about his experiences. But today we have a very, very different topic. We have a one piece of the whole go-to-market cycle, one little piece, but I think one very, very important piece and one piece where there's a lot to be talked about and still to be cleared up. It is partnership sales. So um, you at Camunda told me that you basically, or partnership sales was one um, successful sales channel that you had. So what did you say? How crucial is partnership sales for a B2B SaaS company along the growth journey? Yeah, that's um, it, it is a, a fundamental pillar of almost every B2B SaaS company and their growth story. Um, so I'd say in general, it's crucial, but uh, in particular, in the early days, it depends, of course, right? You will find companies who rely heavily on partners from day one, right? Like that's their main motion. They are selling through agencies or whatever, and that's basically how they grow. You will find others who do it entirely by themselves, not relying on partners at all. And you will find the, mo the vast majority of companies to be somewhere in the middle. Um, so there is uh, support and um, dependencies with partners from day one. Um, but of course, I think we're going to talk about the challenges, right? Like there, there's no guarantee that you easily succeed in that uh, arena. And with Kamunda later on, it was part of the sales organization, by the way. So um, uh, that's how we organized it at a later stage when we started to scale. But happy to also talk about how, how we did it before and how we ended up putting it into the sales eventually. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For example, I'm a very, very big fan about partnerships, especially like in the early stages. I think it's very, very easy to apply and very, very, yeah. Um, cool to like get the first push and get the first case studies maybe and get the first big bigger client also in um yeah but what did you say are the main benefits yeah and also maybe a few challenges that you're facing when um yeah investing in partnerships in the b2b SaaS industry yeah so um the, i think the benefits are typically more obvious than the challenges um let's let's talk about the benefits first of course partners come with a network of their own they are oftentimes bigger than yourself in the beginning and they can help you with their reach and their contacts and basically they are providing an additional or a new route to to your market if done well you can 
join forces, so to say, with your partner and say like, hey, let's let's win in the market together. And by um, by offering a combined value proposition, we're actually stronger than if we would be doing it individually. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that is true, by the way, right? That's how it works generally. And that's how you can succeed. And that relates to your example, right? You're a small underdog, but you happen to convince someone on the partner side, and then they can help you enter an account where you have no relation with um, just because they introduce you and you you can then like show and pitch your product or service or whatever it is you want to sell. Um, let's quickly comment on the challenges because they... You need to also be be cautious, right? You're a small company typically, and you need to be very conscious about where you're spending your time and energy. Your resources are naturally very limited, and the most limited of all is typically time, right? Um, if you spend an hour with a partner, you can't spend it with a client or prospecting or with your product or whatever. So um, you should be aware when you add a partner to the mix, you, it's it's basically a third party coming to the dance. Um, you, it, the minimum is you and your buyer, and now you're adding a partner um, to the mix, and that makes things more complex. You need to make sure that you create basically a win-win-win situation, and that added complexity can take additional time obviously, right? And that um, also introduces additional hurdles and channel uh, challenges that can make you unsuccessful if you don't surpass them and if you don't have the energy to, to overcome them. Mm-hmm. And in your experience, yeah, um, because I think we haven't talked about when um, Kamuna started uh, working with partners. When would you say um, should a company invest in partners and what part does it usually take um, in a go-to-market yeah, cycle or in, in a go-to-market um, yeah, go-to-market engine? I would say, um, how big is the part it takes, and when should a company um, invest in this? In which stage? Yes, let's let's maybe look at two different stages, um, and let's say it's let's look at the stage before you validate your product market fit. Um, so that's the stage where you're experimenting a lot. You're not like fully clear about your ICP, your value proposition and all that. You're pivoting a lot more in that stage. And once you reach like, let's say, 5 to 10 million, your product market fit tends to be a lot more validated. And scaling is a much bigger part of the mission that you're following, right? Like you basically say your product is working and now I'm trying to get it to the market as fast as possible. And I think that influences the way how you deal with partnerships. So mm-hmm. in the early days, you need a partner that is able to, to relate to your like experimentation and your, your way to product market fit. Things are less stable. The partner can expect less things from you, right? You will not have the perfect partner enablement program, which allows them to train all your resources on your product. You will not be able to hand them perfect 
um, go-to-market collateral, let alone um, collateral that's optimized for partners, right? Things change a lot and you want a partner that is um, ready to go through that phase with you. Typically, it tends to be the smaller partners in the beginning. Um, that's where we succeeded as Camunda. So um, with Camunda, we were selling a solution that then needed to be implemented on the client side um, to then uh, build specific business solutions. So it's more, no, it was an infrastructure component like a workflow engine or a process orchestration platform. And then the clients would take it and build solutions. And oftentimes they needed partner resources to do that. So in the early days, we worked a lot with smaller um, IT service providers, typically regionally, locally, um, very um, specific. Uh, oftentimes not more than 50 people, but they liked the product that much that they wanted to work with the product. Um, so we, um, we managed to win a few customers through these partners. It was not because we had the best partner program uh, of the world or we had the best partner enablement resources or anything. But they liked the product that much. They thought like, hey, that's, that's something our people want to work with. And we believe in, in the vision of the product. And that's why we want to work with you as a partner. Mm -hmm. And um, it, of course, depends on your product and all that. But I think the element that you can generalize is that in the beginning, you need partners who are ready for for the volatility of the journey that you're going through. Mm -hmm. And um, we didn't even have a big partner program. It was very standardized. It was at some point optimized for um, like for scale, very standardized, not not much that you would get. Uh, basically, also ensuring that we wouldn't get distracted too much by too many partner inquiries because we also lost a lot of time in the early days in partnership mm -hmm. meetings and there was a point where we said like okay that needs to stop we need to focus on um on winning the clients ourselves and we cannot spend all that time with the, the partners so we selected a handful where we uh, spent more time and that was yeah oftentimes owned by the CEO, driven by the CEO or individual sellers who maintain good relationships. Um, mm. So that's yeah. the early phase. And then you transition to scaling and that's where you want to be more programmatic about your program. Um, so you want to say like, hey, um, here's a partner program. That's what we can bring to the table for these partners. We give you a product. We give you maybe favorable pricing, we give you access to exclusive information, we have a training program for you, um, which can make you confident that you can scale with us. And then you start to work with a different kind of partner profile. They tend to grow in size. Um, the partnership is is more strategic, but you also have to invest more time to get things going. Um, yeah. Feel free to, to ask more, but that's like how I would differentiate these phases. Um, because I think uh, in the early days, the risk is that you spend a lot of time with partners and you will have good meetings and good talking and all that. But um, 
there's an inherent risk that this never translates into any business. And then you should stop as, as soon as possible, basically, and win yeah. clients instead. Absolutely. And I think that's really, really great insights. But um, I think the growth stage of a company is one thing. And the other thing is like the size of the company or the size of the market that the company is selling to. For example, where do you see the differentiators between maybe enterprise, uh, mid-market and uh, smaller businesses in, in partnerships? And um, of course, you were in enterprise and happy that you give me more insights there, but maybe um, for people who are working in mid-market sales, um, what would you recommend to them building partnership sales? And also, does maybe a partnership with a smaller company equal a smaller deal and with a bigger company equal a bigger deal? Um, yes. So first of all, let's clarify that it's, it's true what you're saying. My, the vast majority of my experience is coming from the enterprise world. So basically selling to companies, uh, north of a thousand employees, but typically even a lot bigger, north of 10,000 employees or so. So the, um, fortune 500 and maybe the level below, um, and they are very used to buying products and then engaging with partners who help them in their IT project, basically. So that's the world that I'm coming from. Um, I'm not an expert if it's more about like an SMB segment where it's like a turnkey solution or anything. I can very well imagine things being, being very different there. Um, you asked about deal sizes. I think um, that. That is mainly dependent on the end customer that you're selling to, either by yourself or together with a partner. Um, it's not that much dependent on who the partner is that you're working with. Mm. That can have an effect, but let's, let's make two scenarios. You work with a big partner and you're selling into a very small account, or you work with a very small partner and you're selling into a very big account. I think the account size is by by far more relevant than the size of the partner. Um, of course, if you have a big name as a partner, they can get you into these large accounts in the first place. Hmm. And you can maybe not get there by yourself. Yes, that's that's also very true. But the, yeah. the deal sizes and the money is, is basically dependent on who you're selling to and how much value you're generating and uh, your ability to capture that for you. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, so what would you say? Um, because this is a question I always get and I never get a proper answer. Yeah. But for me, it is obvious. Yeah. Who in your go to market org takes over these partnerships when you don't have, for example, an own partnership org because you're not, yeah, you're not at the size. Um, so you're now asking about like, okay, now we want to scale the thing, right? Like we, we're very confident exactly. that partnerships are going to work and we basically want to maximize the hell out of it. Where should we put it in the organization? Um, the first thing I would look at, just to be clear, and I think your, your, your question is leading into a clear direction, but make yourself aware of what kind of partnerships we're talking about. There's very different kinds of partnerships. Um, 
Let's take an example which I would not naturally put into the go-to-market organization. That is uh, tech partnerships. So let's say you have a product and you say, hey, if my product integrates with the product of another company, our combined value proposition is stronger because we have such a beautiful integration or whatever kind of um, relation we can make. That's not uh, a partnership which is about selling initially. That's about the product. So that needs to be a lot closer to the product side of things. And you don't want to hand this to coin-operated salespeople, basically, um, right? Because they, uh, they, they are taking it in the wrong direction. Then there's these more like OEM-like partnerships. That's also a very different thing, right? Like um, OEM is basically about your product becoming part of another company's product oftentimes not even visible to the end client, right? Just so um, the other company can deliver um, their product um, easier and you're just like a building block in their product. That again is very different um, from the classical sales motivated partnerships, which is about going to market together. So let's talk about those maybe, right? Because that's, I think, what you're hinting at and that's what you typically want to scale in support of your, um, of your growth. So again, there's different flavors of it. There's um, uh, partnerships uh, or there's partners that help you sell, um, often through contractual vehicles, right? Like, ooh, I want to sell to this client, but I'm not compliant enough. I don't have a frame agreement with them, da-da-da-da-da. If I want to put one out, that will take me two years of time. Um, who can sell to them and who can bridge the gap? That's that's the classical um, software resellers, um, and uh, those basically become relevant at the later stages of your sale, and then they can bridge the gap. They get a small fee, but they don't really advocate for your product, right? They are more like a contractual vehicle. I think um, the the biggest leverage are the ones which generate demand together with you help you convert it, and then maybe even help you deliver on uh, what the value you're, you're promising when you're selling. Those, um, you want to have them sit in sales in the broadest sense. There's different models. I can tell you how I would do it, but there's also other models. Um, you can, like, on a high level, there's two alternatives. You can have two separate sales organizations one is like direct sales and one is partnership sales um and you can have them both report to like someone like me in my cro role or um whoever is is leading that part uh, in your organization but um they're not sitting under the same roof so to say right they're separate to each other um that is um not my preference because it gets you into a channel conflict, right? You're in the end, you're fighting for the same accounts and then you internally st setting up your people to fight each other, right? You have the channel salesperson trying to win the account together with a partner and maybe you have the field sales account executive that's trying to win the same account um, directly and then... Um, you're not fighting for the customer, but you start fighting internally to who gets the quota relief and all that. So um, the way we set it up was more like a co-sell model. 
So um, the quota was always on the field AEs eventually, um, the uh, like who were uh, trying to close a certain amount of business. And if a partner was involved, they would get supported by the partner organization who also had quotas and all that. But um, it was all running into the same numbers, so to say, or rolling up into the same number. And uh, that is why, um, in our case, is what it was sitting all in the sales organization. We had a global VP sales, and that person was responsible for the partnership team, which was a team of its own, and uh, the field sales team. And in a particular deal, they would team up. Um, basically, the partner manager, let, let's make an example. Let's say partner manager uh, has sourced a deal with a partner. That deal would be handed over to the AE. And then the AE would progress the deal together with the partner and the partner manager, basically um, maximizing the, the value that could be brought to the client and the revenue that could be achieved in return. And did you then pay double commission? Um, we would pay commission differently. Um, so the AE commission was really about what can you close as a deal, whereas the partner commission was also related to... Um, to how many deals you would source through the partners, how would you influence them, and yes, also for the final revenue number. So in a way, yes, we would pay we would pay commission to two roles um, on the same closed deal. Yes, um, we would also pay commission to others involved in that deal. So that's not unusual. It would not be the same commission, right? Like it's, it were different. We had different commission plans. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's 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 it sounds like oh double commission, but I think it's way way more important that you don't have like this conflict in within the team, um, and then maybe you pay double commission or a bit more. Um, but yeah, in uh, I think the worst thing you can have is really like you mentioned before that within the team both teams are working against each other. Uh, for example, especially for you as a CRO. Yeah, but that is very very interesting. Um. What would you say, um, because we've done, or I've done partnerships myself, I've also done um, partnerships that, that didn't work, yeah? Um, what would you say, what factors, if I have maybe a great partner, but there may be a few flags um, that I see, or the first deals haven't been too good, um, what factors should be, or what questions should I ask myself um, when identifying uh, and selecting a potential partner? Um, I think... What you want to be very clear about is the motivation of each party, right? Maybe you like each other a lot and you like what you're doing and you admire personalities and everything. Um, in my experience, that's not enough. You need to have a strong business case for both sides and that needs to be transparent to each other. So um, how does the vendor, like the software company, uh, benefit? What's the interests of the vendor? What do they want? How do partners support their growth strategy? And how do the partners benefit from this? What is in it for them? I give you an example. Um, let's say you're a software company. You're probably trying to maximize your ARR, right? And that is coming from license revenue primarily. 
So um, you should be very clear with your partner and say like, hey, this is what I'm trying to maximize. Um, that's That makes or breaks my company valuation. Um, and uh, that's where I need your help. I like if we go to a client together, it for us, it's always about selling a license. Um, and then you have the partner who's maybe doing services on top of that license, an implementation project and a consulting project, a training project, whatever. Understand that well, because then the partner's perspective is maybe, hey, and I'm here to maximize my services revenue. Um, also, I'm trying to blah, do whatever on top, right? Trying to enter a new market where I'm not present and you're very present or something like that. But um, my business model is services business. And we are talking because I think I can grow my services business um, by, yeah, helping you position your licenses and then get that revenue for myself. I think having that clarity early on is key because sometimes you discover hmm we actually don't have a win-win situation right like hmm, i'm an arr focused company but we are talking to another company who's also trying to build a license revenue well that's doomed to run into conflict let's maybe not partner too much or um i don't know we like your product so much but we don't have any resources to do any services on top of that yeah okay then we shouldn't go to the client together because you cannot uh, like um come across in an authentic way as well. mm. so um i think being clear about this in the beginning is um is key and then um you need to find a way how you measure that over time then you can have goals for each other, right? That you can track and where you can sit down after a quarter or so and say like, hey, how did that actually go? Did we manage to achieve what we wanted to achieve? Um, oftentimes not, right? And then you say like, well, but do we still have enough confidence that this will change? Or is there something that um, we could have done better last quarter that we can learn from for the future? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that helps you be specific about how successful you really are together. And um, for example, I um, would like to share an example from like uh, personal experience um, where we had a partnership which worked quite well, <clears throat> but there was quite of an issue. Yeah, we had uh, a deal with an, of course, we're a recruiting company, and um, our goal is to recruit people. Fill positions fill roles, uh, so service company. And um, we had a partnership with an employer of record, yeah, somebody who is um, employing people so that companies can hire abroad easily. Yeah? So for us, the incentive is, hey, um, if we have a hard-to-fill position, it's of course easier to open up a new market and then have a broader candidate. And um, then for them, of course, they get uh, additional revenue by us just recommending them and have new clients. But then um, there were some issues um, with the product of our partner, yeah. Um, so, what would you say if a partnership is quite working quite well, yeah? Uh, but you recommended somebody, and the product is now not that work, not working that well. So, um, how would you say you resolve something like this with a with a partner potentially? Um, I'd say you should see that as an opportunity to to test your partnership. 
you that it's it's natural that things are not always smooth sailing throughout the tenure of your partnership right like you will run into trouble sooner or later and the best partnerships we had um, were developed through these kind of times where things were not easy um, because you can then um, get a feel for like for the question if you're able to overcome bigger roadblocks or obstacles together or if you get stuck so um, if you get stuck well maybe you had the wrong expectations with each other um, i would never assume negative intentions because that takes you down the wrong route in general but hey then you know where you are right like okay um I misjudged this partnership. Maybe I dial back my efforts a little bit. Um, always be open and give feedback to the other side. Um, and maybe you manage to overcome this. And then you know, like, hey, here I have a partner with whom I can work very well in the good times. But I also have a proven track record of being able to work in when it turns sour a little bit, right? Um, mm. And those are your best partnerships eventually where you are able to to overcome big obstacles. But you're not yeah. going to achieve it with every partner. And it's not a problem, I would say. Um, you can still Absolutely. continue working together and say like, okay, understood, this is how it works. Um, and um, let's continue on that basis. Maybe yeah. yeah. reevaluate how much we put in from our end um, if uh, our expectations weren't met. But... Um, at first, I would see it as an opportunity to test um, the commitment of the the mutual commitment in a partnership. Absolutely. Um, so I think one big thing is also um, approaching partners and like scaling also um, partners. So um, just maybe on the yeah, it's kind of also say is the acquiring new partners. Um, who do I approach? Um, how do I identify a partner? Or do you just like go ahead and then search for a list and then um, you have somebody in the partnership sales team approaches them? Who does it? Um, so how do I acquire new partners? Um, I think I would ad adopt or um, apply something similar to what you do with your ideal customer profile. Be, be conscious about the profile of the partner companies that you work well with. Why? Because you can typically find a strong win-win with these partnerships. Um, so again, following a bit our example, I'm a technology provider, um, but um, my end customers need to do implementation projects to get the true value out of the um, uh, technology that I'm providing, and that can be supported by partnerships, right? Like by by partners. These partners do implementation work, um, so there's a strong win-win. So who would I be looking for? Well, I would be looking for companies whose core offering is about building solutions, um, supporting clients in IT projects. Um, of a complexity that matches with what my what is required for my product. Maybe it's also mm -hmm. about the specific technologies. Um, in our case, it was a lot about Java in the early days. So if someone would be a .NET shop, 
that wouldn't be an ideal partnership for us because, hey, you don't have the knowledge that is needed for our technology. So um, you want to, yeah, be conscious about that. And that will help you to narrow your potential targets for um, a partnership acquisition. Um, mm -hmm. That's one thing. The second one is that I would be conscious about the size. As I said, right, like it's much easier to acquire a small partner when you are small yourself. Yes, we all want to work with the big companies, the EYs, the Capgeminis. Yeah, there's big names out there. But um, if you want to, guess what? Many want to do that, right? And they um, they get typically a lot of demand and you need to have a lot of patience and energy to, to crack them open, so to say, and to, to open these accounts for you. So... I would say you only want to do that once you've reached a certain maturity. And um, before that is the case, you you can still make a great business with smaller partnerships um, that are more local. Um, and I'm not sure if that's to be generalized, but what worked well for us is um, that the users at the partners often were in, in touch with our product already long before we acquired them as partners. So that, that worked in, in the Camunda case, right? That was a very bottom-up, user-focused approach. And we would find a similar persona in the partner um, company as we would find in the end customer company. The software developer in our case could be a different persona. And that helped us identify partners with a higher potential because we knew, hey, they're already looking at our product. They have played around with it. Um, and that makes it a lot easier for us to approach them. Later on, it's also about like leveraging your executive network. I would add that as well, right? Like at later stages, you, um, you bring mm -hmm. in more senior executives, they typically have a network um, that you can then use to acquire additional partners. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think another thing that is very important in terms of yeah um, revenue that you get out of it is measuring ROI and also um, would be great if you could share also a few benchmarks. So how did you measure the ROI of the partners? and? Um, what did you say, maybe if you can share it, maybe not, um, it doesn't matter. What was the most you ever got out of a partnership deal? Um, I would, at first, I would say you need to separate two things. There's tangible outcomes that you get through partnerships that you can count um, and measure. And there's intangible or less tangible um, uh, things that you get which you need to value, but oftentimes you cannot measure. So um, I cannot even give you a clear number for what was the maximum of ROI or output that you ever got through a partner. Um, because a lot of that stuff is happening behind the scenes, is a bit fuzzy, right? Like you cannot fully attribute everything to the partners. Um, 
what um, I'm still a big fan of metrics and counting, right? Because that um, helps to objectify things. So what we would always count is how many opportunities did we source through partners? And the way we thought about it was like, hey, here's an opportunity and we wouldn't be working on it if it wasn't for the partner, right? Without that partner, we wouldn't be working on that opportunity. Then I can clearly say, hey, we can attribute the sourcing of that opportunity to a particular partner. That's one thing that you can count, right? You can count the number or the value of these opportunities. And that's a very commonly used metric in the industry, right? We, we didn't invent that metric. We adopted it, basically. Um, then um, the, the second one, which is also very widely adopted, is the influence that partners have on your deals. Right. It can be that you sourced the deal yourself, but then a partner helped you close it, grow the deal, right? Turn a small deal into a big deal, make an unlikely deal into a likely deal. Um, that's called um, partner involved business or partner influenced business. Two terms uh, used very, um, very in a very similar way. That is oftentimes less clear, right? That ranges from, hey, here, the partner did the majority of the selling and we actually didn't do that much ourselves to, well, the partner was also present in a few meetings, but I'm not sure if there was a true influence, right? The volatility of that is much higher, but um, you can track it um, in your Salesforce and then you can, you can also measure it. What we would find out is that as soon as partners were involved in, in our pipeline, those deals tended to convert at a higher rate. Um, so they increased the likelihood of, of us um, making a sale in the first place. And yeah. in our program, those were the two main KPIs that we, that we used. Um, and to name a few less tangible ones, um, Let's say a partner provides you with account intel, right? Like you're looking at a large organization. You don't understand them typically, right? You ask yourself, like, how, how the heck is a 10,000 employee organization working? Who's in charge and, and so on, right? Who has the biggest budget? Who's running IT project? Who has certain problems? And then partners, oftentimes, they sit in these organizations for a long time, right? They maybe hold a 30-year relationship. And they mm -hmm. can explain to you very well what's going on in an account like that. And that potentially helps you to um, source more opportunities and close more business. This is the kind of work that's very hard to quantify, but it's super valuable. Sometimes it is, mm -hmm. sometimes it isn't, right? If you never close a deal, it's still like, mm, well, that was interesting, but I never got something out of it. But um what I'm trying to say is that's the kind of stuff you should definitely be doing. But um, to me, it, it was never worth the effort to really quantify that in numbers. Um, but it made the difference how we segmented our partners, for example, in the end. Um, that could have made the difference for a partner being in a higher segment, um, although the other KPIs were, were not supporting that. Yeah, yeah, understood. Cool. Yeah, we're coming to our last question. Um, and I'm very excited about this one. Um, 
you are now uh, also yeah working with a few, few smaller companies and helping them uh, with your experience as an advisor. So um, of course you see a lot of things. What would be the advice, um, or what would be a few things that you would give to the people out there? Um, yeah, to uh, summarize everything we talked about. Um, so the most important things you would tell people when building um, a partnership. Yes. Um, I think in, in this, for the companies in the smaller stages, my first advice would be unless you're a partner focused, exclusively partner focused business, don't approach partnerships in a way that you have to rely on them translating into success in a short amount of time. The partnership game is more long-term and you need to have a way to control your own destiny in the meantime. So um, if you're drawn between, should I invest my next 20 days into building my sales team or into building partnerships, I would be drawn towards like build your sales team first, right? Um, don't, don't get distracted too quickly by the partnerships. Um, and um, then rather pick a few selected partners where you know you can work with them um, and then, yeah, produce some success with those instead of thinking about scaling the partnership program too quickly. Um, the sequence of events that I would um, propose is like scale your sales team independently without part, like too much partner involvement initially. That's your first priority. And then think about programmatizing your partner, your approach to partnerships. Don't, un unless there's a very good reason because you're super partner centric as a business, don't reverse that order, in my opinion. Um, and the other advice is um, don't be too selfish. Um, your partners will only be motivated if you provide them with a strong incentive in their own business model. Invest time to understand that well before you, um, before you go to market together. You need to win the partners at least as much as they need to win you over. Um, probably you even more than, than them if they are bigger than you. So um, treat them a, a little bit like you would treat your end customers. Um, and that can then set a good, good foundation. Yeah. Thank you so much, Robert, for being my guest and all the insights. Um, and to all the people out there, of course, um, feel free to uh, reach out to Robert. Uh, this LinkedIn is in the show notes. Um, yeah, uh, if you have anything, uh, I'm sure he's happy to discuss anything discussed today. I am. And thanks for having me, Alex. It was great. <laughs>